chapter 22, beginning in verse 31, the Word of God says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day, before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Let's pray together. Father, I love you. I thank you for this opportunity, this privilege, Lord, this honor that it is to stand behind your pulpit. I pray, Father, that you would uh, help me this morning to hide behind your cross. Lord, I pray that with power and unction that your word would be preached. And Lord, I pray that your presence would be manifest in this place. Lord, we need you. We don't just need to hear about you, we need to hear from you. And I pray, Father, that we would make ourselves available for the listening, for the receiving of your word, and that you would do an eternal work in our hearts and lives today. Lord, we love you, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm interested in what the Lord says in verse 31 about Satan's desire for the life of Peter. Let me read it again for you. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Sifting in the Word of God, whenever the wheat harvest would come in, uh, they wouldn't go through and pick apart which was wheat and which was chaff whenever they gathered it together. So when they brought it there to the sifting floor, there would be a mixture of that which was substantive and that which was just superficial. And they would take that wheat and they would beat it upon that uh, sifting floor and they'd try to jar loose everything that was real and substantive. And then they would take it, place that wheat upon a big sheet and they would would throw it up in the air. I'm sure you've seen sometimes uh, youngsters in, uh, you know, PE classes and things like that and the camps do the same thing, get a big bed sheet and put a youngster in the middle and uh, throw them up in the air. They would throw this wheat up in the air. Everything that fell down uh, quickly they knew had substance but that which floated and was carried away by the wind, they knew there was no substance to it. Let me say to you this morning that sifting wheat for the wheat was a pretty violent action. If you had a choice whether to be the wheat or the sifter, you'd always choose to be the sifter. Amen? Nobody wanted to be thrown around and beat against the floor and tossed to and fro the way the wheat was going to be treated in the sifting process. And the Lord Jesus says concerning Peter that Satan had a desire to shake him, to throw him, to break him, to try to tell what about his testimony was real and what about it was fake. I want to preach to you this morning for a little while on this thought, sifted as wheat. I'm going to do my best to be as concise as possible because I've got about three sermons worth of notes here. Somebody say amen to that. But I want you to notice five things that provide the context for what takes place in Peter's life. Let me remind you that the sifting does not take place in the verses we've read, but merely the warning that there would be a sifting. Can I remind you this morning that probably the sifting that will take place in your life probably ain't going to happen in this message this morning, but in the days and weeks to follow, Satan may set himself against you or your family and seek to throw you and toss you and beat you and abuse you to try to shake loose and find out what's real and what's not. And so the, the context for this message 
are the things that the Lord has stated in these verses. And I want to just give you five simple things real quick for an introduction. Let me say, number one, he lists the pursuit of Satan in Peter's life. In other words, notice it carefully. He says, Satan hath desired to have you. In other words, Satan had a plan and a will and a desire and designs for the life of Simon Peter. Uh, Let me tell you something. Don't deceive yourself into thinking you're not important enough for Satan to wreck your life. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your relationship with your loved ones. He wants to destroy your testimony. He wants to destroy your relationship with your church family. Uh, Don't think for one minute you can fly under the radar. Satan has desired you in the same way he desired Simon Peter. Then I want you to notice the prayer of the Savior. It says in verse 32, boy, I like this. You've heard about the when God butts into a situation. Uh, in fact, let, ju- just to enjoy it, let's read verse 31 and 32. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Let me say that Satan most certainly has a desire for your life. And if you allow him to... He will destroy it. Listen, if you're saved by the grace of God, He can't take your salvation away from you. It isn't your salvation in the first place. It's God's salvation. Somebody say amen to that. Satan has no jurisdiction over you once you're born again. Uh, You're not his child anymore. Uh, Before a person gets saved, they are a child of the devil. Uh, You say, preacher, why would you say that? Well, because Christ said it. He said about the Pharisees, you're of your father, the devil. Once you get born again, you're not under his jurisdiction. He can't take your salvation. Even when he wanted to uh, take Job's life, he had to ask God's permission. God said, you can do everything you want, but don't take his life. Why? Because life is not under the jurisdiction of Satan. And so he desires uh, Simon Peter, and he wants to destroy him, and Satan wants to destroy your life. But never forget who ultimately has the say in matters, and that's the Lord of glory. He says, I have prayed for thee. Hey, what could we not face if we know Jesus is praying for us? What could we not battle if we know that Jesus is praying for us? I'm reminded of what the Lord Jesus says in John chapter 17. He goes through this wonderful, glorious, glowing prayer for His disciples, praying that uh, God would uh, keep them from the world, that God would allow them to be a witness, that God would uh, uphold them and strengthen them in the months and years ahead. But then He says this, He said, I pray not for them only, but also for those that believe through their Word. Boy, ain't it good to know this morning that the Lord has prayed for us too. We see the prayer of the Savior. And then notice verse 32, the end of it. We see the promise of success. The Bible says, uh, When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. He does not say, If thou art converted. He says, When thou art converted. And a lot of preachers make a lot about that word converted. And the word converted is a good Bible term. Although I'll tell you this, I don't believe in this context that what the Lord Jesus is saying is when Peter uh, believes in the Lord, because I believe Peter already believed in the Lord. I believe when he says, when thou art converted, he's saying, when you get to the other side of this thing. This experience, Peter, is going to change you. There's going to be a conversion take place. And when you make it through to the other side of this thing, Peter, strengthen the brethren. Uh, Listen, we can get hung up on the word converted. I'd rather get encouraged by the word when. 
Because it tells me this, that the storms in life, they don't come to stay, they come to pass. And the things that we face, uh, they're not here to destroy us, but they're here to draw us closer to God. We have the promise of God that no matter how, no matter what, no matter why, when this thing ends, we end it in the bosom of God Himself. I see the promise of success, but then I can't help but notice the pride of Simon. Verse 33, Peter opens his big mouth, amen. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And there and right there we see his Achilles heel, his pride. Uh, Matthew gives us a little more insight to it. In Matthew 26, 33 through 35, Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men should be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Have you ever felt that way? You ever thought that? Hey, listen, everybody else may mess up, but I'll never mess up. Everybody else may get out of church, but I'll never get out of church. Everybody else may turn their backs on God, but I'll never turn my back on God. You better be careful. Because the truth is, you ain't made out of anything different than any other believer that's failed and messed up. Uh, There's not a one of us that can't wind up messed up and broken and in the gutter. And we should all be saying, but for the grace of God, there go I. He says, though all be offended, yet will not I. And Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow thou shalt deny me thrice. And then even after the Lord said that, Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. The absolute, (laughs) absolute unshakable pride that Peter has is the very thing that leads to the sifting of his life. You see, Paul said this, When I am weak, then am I strong. Uh, I'm reminded of what the uh, Old Testament prophet said, uh, Hosea said about the nation of Israel, said that uh, when they were a little, uh, when they were little, they were exalted with God, but when they grew, uh, they offended. When they exalted, they offended. In other words, when they were small in their own eyes, then God favored them and they were exalted. But when they got to be thinking they were somebody, then all of a sudden they fell. And the Bible tells us very clearly that pride cometh before a fall. And so we find the Lord's prophecy of stumbling in verse 34. I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. In other words, the Lord reminds him, Peter, you're not above the fray and you're not above it all. You'll mess up just like everybody will mess up. Just as sure as this sifting will take place, Peter, there will be a stumbling that will take place. Now, this is important for us to understand because as long as we think we've got to live perfectly for God to use us, we're never going to be used of God. And as long as our expectation of life is that we're never going to mess up, we're going to stay discouraged. Instead, we need to acknowledge that there are going to be times we're going to mess up. We should not embrace that, but we should acknowledge that. And uh, when those times come, there is a place, there is a resource, there is an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. I believe that the sifting takes place in the verses that follow. And there is a threefold sifting in the life of Peter. Literally before the sun comes up, Peter faces three challenges and fails in all three of them miserably. And we find a pattern to each of these three things. And I want to give it to you before we start preaching. Let me say that in each of these three instances, we will notice the fierceness of Satan. Now, the Lord told Peter, said, Satan's after you. He's gunning for you. Peter said, oh, I'm not worried about him. I'm not intimidated by him. But on all three occasions, the cunningness and subtleness of Satan is on full display. He knows exactly how to approach Peter in a way that will leave Peter Peter the most vulnerable. And then we see not only the fierceness of Satan, but we'll see the failure of Simon. 
In all three occasions, he messes up. But then we'll notice before we're done, boy, I like this, we'll see in all three of them the faithfulness of the Savior. In every one of them, uh, Satan, uh, Peter drops the ball and the Lord picks up the ball. In every single one of them, Peter messes up, but the Lord holds up. And it reminds me of this, that we're going to face sifting in our life. There's going to be times things are brought in and they shake us and they break us. But the purpose is not that they cast us down forever. The purpose is rather that we see them as an opportunity to lean on the Lord and as an opportunity for His strength to be manifest unto us. I want you to notice these three siftings and then we'll be done. Let me say number one we see that when Satan approached Peter, he sifted his communion with the Lord. We might say it this way, that the first thing Satan did is Satan attacked Peter's time with the Lord. Look down at verse 39. The Bible says this. Of course, they they had had this conversation. They left. They they went down uh, to uh, the uh, uh, Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible says in verse 39, "...and he came out and went as he was wont, speaking of the Lord, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him." And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray ye that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples... He found them sleeping for sorrow, and said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. So the Lord takes His disciples out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Matthew and Mark really give us a lot more insight on what takes place this evening. John says very, very little about the Garden of Gethsemane and this experience. But Matthew and Mark sort of open up much more truth to us. The Lord uh, takes all of His disciples, then He leaves most of them, and He takes Peter and James and John, takes them into the Garden of Gethsemane, and then He leaves them in a place, and the Bible says He went a little further. Boy, aren't you glad He went a little further for us. He went a little further by Himself, fell on the ground, and began to pray. But before He did, He turned and looked at His disciples, and He said, listen, there's spiritual battle taking place. Uh, I have no doubt whatsoever. The Bible said that, said that the Lord was in great agony, that God had to send an angel to strengthen Him. And let me just say this to you. Hey, listen, prayer doesn't ready us for the, uh, the, the battle. Prayer is the battle. Amen? Uh, prayer is where it's won or lost. And uh, so he leaves uh, uh, Peter and James and John, but before he does, he says, listen, there's spiritual battle taking place. I need you to stay here. I need you to stay awake. I need you to watch. I need you to pray with me, lest you enter into temptation. By the way, isn't it interesting? He doesn't say, I need you to pray lest I enter into temptation. He says, I need you to pray lest you enter into temptation. Uh, in other words, prayer... Oh my, I, I wasn't going to preach on prayer, but uh, let me just say that prayer does far more to change us than it ever does to change God. It says, pray ye that ye enter into temptation. Well, uh, Simon, Peter, and James, and John, they're sitting there, and I would imagine they probably had a pretty good prayer meeting for the first 15 minutes or so. Most believers do. But then eventually their eyes begin to get heavy. They begin to get weary. And I'll say this to their compliment. The Bible says they were sleeping for sorrow, meaning that they were praying so intensely that it literally drained them and they fell asleep. But you notice that the Lord Jesus, He says, if you fall asleep, and, I, and let me be very clear, I don't believe the Lord's trying to say if you ever fall asleep praying, you've sinned. Amen? Because let me tell you, I can't tell you the times I fell asleep praying. <laughs> 
But I do believe what he is saying is this. There is an active spiritual battle taking place, and you must be actively engaged in it. You're not passively engaged in it. He's saying this, and let this be a lesson to all of us. You can't just check out of the spiritual battle. Hey, a lot of people try to do that. A lot of people say, well, you know, I just won't bother with it. I won't fool with it. I'll just do my own thing. I'll just go my own way. No, neighbor, Satan's coming after you. You better get in this fight because the fight's coming to you. And so uh, they uh, fall asleep. And I want you to notice three simple thoughts and then we'll move on. Let me say, number one, that there was an appeal to the flesh that had taken place. Uh, Satan knew and understood that the uh, easiest way to get to Simon Peter was through Simon Peter. It's actually interesting because you'll see a progression take place. At first he tries to approach him uh, through his flesh. Then he tries to uh, get to him through a foe, and then, or through a friend, and then he tries to get through, to him through his foes. But this first one, he doesn't have to go anywhere. He just appeals to Simon Peter through his own flesh. Listen to what the Lord says in Matthew 26 about this. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep and saith unto them, What could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Now listen to this. You know it. You can probably quote it. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I'm going to try to say this as plain as I can. The first thing Satan is going to try to attack in your life is your walk with God, your time with the Lord. If he can cripple your prayer life, then he can cripple the rest of your life. And so the first thing he's going to pursue after is that relationship between you and God. Now, we know that he can never undo the new birth. We know he can never take away our salvation. We know he can never send us to hell if we've been born again. We understand that. But what he can do is he can anesthetize us spiritually, and he can cripple us in such a way that we do not walk with God on a daily basis. And if he does this, he has rendered us ineffectual for the cause of Christ. And the way he does this, by and large, before anything else, is not through others. It's not through the disappointment of people around us. It's not through the assault of those that hate Christianity. The first way that he approaches us is simply through the apathy and lethargy of our own flesh. The truth is this. The greatest enemy towards modern-day Christianity is not the government. The greatest enemy towards modern-day Christianity is not the ecumenical movement. The greatest enemy to modern Christianity is not the influence of pagan religions. The greatest enemy to modern-day Christianity is the apathy of Christians themselves. We are the ones. It is our fault. We must battle ourselves. And let me tell you something. Any man that can can win against himself has got pretty much everyone else beat. If you can discipline yourself enough to stay faithful to the prayer closet and faithful to the Word of God, then there's no enemy that can thwart you. The first and primary thing is we must defeat ourselves. Satan didn't have to bring somebody in. All he had to do was let those eyes get heavy. And isn't it interesting how we can spend all manner of time on the frivolities of life and we have almost inexhaustible energy, but the moment that we got to read our Bible, the moment we got to pray, the moment we got to get up and be at God's house, all of a sudden, poor pitiful us, we just can't handle it anymore. By the same token, isn't it phenomenal the things we'll endure for the sake of our job? Hey, listen, no doubt there's people in this room you've been talked down to like a dog at the place you work, but you keep going back and you keep going back. Why do you do it? Because of the paycheck that comes at the end of the week. You say, that's just the way it is. That's the things you've got to put up with. I've got a lot of funny stories that I've got too much sermon to be telling, uh, but uh, I've got a lot of funny stories about times when I worked in the public sphere. Man, let me tell you something. You talk about something that tests your flesh is uh, work in the service industry. Amen? Deal with customers. Uh, I mean, boy, I'm telling you, it'll really get under your skin 
But we put up with it, we deal with it. Why? Because we say, well, I need it. By the same token, uh, somebody just sniffles towards us in the house of God, and all of a sudden, we're gone. Somebody looks at us cross-eyed, and we're over it, we're done. I'm just saying this, we have a lot more resilience when it comes to the things of the world than oftentimes we do spiritually speaking. And because of this, Satan will do everything he can to try through our flesh to cause us to faint. We see an appeal to the flesh, but then we see the acquiescence to fatigue. In other words, what happened? They gave in. In fact, the Bible tells us, not in Luke's account, but in Matthew and Mark's, that three separate times the Lord came back to them and they were sleeping. And in fact, the Bible goes out of its way. And we saw this in the verses we just read. He cometh unto his disciples and findeth them asleep and saith unto Peter. Why did he say it to Peter? James and John were there. Did they not fall asleep? Yes, they fell asleep. Why did he say it to Peter? Because not more than a couple of hours ago he said, Peter, Satan's after you. Be vigilant. Be watchful. And in the same respect, you and I, we've been warned to stand against the wiles of the devil. Satan desires to destroy us. And so I think if it was us in that garden, the Lord would look at us. He'd call my name. He'd call your name. And he'd say, what could you not watch with me one hour? Peter gave in. And when he gave in, things didn't get better. They got worse. We tell ourselves this lie that the conflict is what causes the discomfort. That if we just quit fighting, spiritually speaking, it'll all get easier. But that's not how it is. The fact is, when we give up and when we quit serving God, things don't get easier. They get a lot worse. They get a lot worse. Now, listen, I'm not, I'm not disputing the fact that when we commit ourselves to serve God, it ramps up the spiritual warfare. I'm saying there's worse things than the spiritual warfare. Spiritual deadness is worse than spiritual warfare. So he falls asleep. But then, where I thought about this, this encouraged me. We see in this passage an appeal to the flesh, the flesh and an acquiescence to fatigue, but then we notice that there's an advocate that is faithful. Peter fell asleep when he should have been praying, but the Lord was praying while they were sleeping. Uh, listen, and, and, I'm, and I thought about this. I'll be honest with you. When I was praying over this sermon and studying, I thought about this, and I, and I said this to the Lord, Lord, I don't want to do anything that's going to make people feel like they've got an excuse to lay down on you and to not serve you. But he reminded me of this, that us failing is an inevitability. We need to be equipped to understand what to do when we do mess up. And the reality is this. We will mess up. We will make mistakes. We will faint. We will fatigue. And when that time comes, hey, listen, it doesn't have to be fatal and it doesn't have to be final because we have an advocate that never sleepeth nor slumbereth, that never walks away from his responsibility, that never lets a prayer fall to the ground. And even when we know not what we ought to pray, he knoweth the mind of God and the will of the Spirit. And he's still praying. Uh, You may have messed up, but you don't have to give up because he's still fighting the fight. He is faithful in two things, and I was encouraged by this. Number one, he's faithful to provoke. Three times. Isn't it interesting? The Lord knew before the world was ever created that in that garden on that night that they would fall asleep. Now, remember, they didn't fall asleep two times. They fell asleep three times. You know what that means? That means there was a first time that he woke them up, There was a last time that he woke him up, but there was a time in the middle too. And it reminds me of this. He could have, being omniscient God and knowing that they were just going to go back to sleep, he could have said, they're going to fall asleep and I'm not going to wake them up until Judas comes to the garden. They weren't praying, they were sleeping. One could suggest that they probably weren't doing much good in the spiritual warfare. So he didn't provoke them for his own benefit. He provoked them for their benefit. You know why he kept waking them up? 
because they needed to be praying. You know why he kept waking them up? Hey, listen, not because they hadn't given up on him, but because he wasn't giving up on them. And he kept dealing with them and stirring them and jarring them and trying to convince them of the great battle that was taking place around them. And it reminds me of this. Hey, listen, the Lord is faithful to deal with and convict us when we make mistakes, when we do wrong, when we mess up. Hey, He doesn't need us. We need Him. But He loves us, so He deals with us. One of the greatest graces of God is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The fact that God, when we sin, will tell us that we've sinned. That He will stir us, that He will make us uncomfortable, that He will dislodge us from our apathy, that He'll come and when we're slumbering, He'll stir us and wake us up. He's faithful to provoke. Listen, don't despise the chastening of the Lord. That's what Paul said in the book of Hebrews. Despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither faint when thou rebuked of Him. In other words, if God's dealing with you this morning, don't get mad about it. Hey, praise God for it. Respond to it. He's provoking you because He loves you. He was faithful to provoke, but He was faithful to pray. Even when they weren't saying what they should have been, He was saying what needed to be said. You know, in our life, listen, the, our actions have consequences. There's no question. And if we don't live for God, we'll be the worst for it. But inasmuch as God is exercising His will in this world around us, let us never forget that He's taken into account every mistake we've ever made. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what we're going to do wrong. He knows what we're going to do right. And as such, He has already made a way, even when we don't know the way has been made. In other words, even when we fall asleep when we should be praying, He's still praying because He still knows what needs to be said. He still knows what needs to be done. Preacher, what are you driving at? I'm saying, so you messed up. Not all is lost. Uh, Confess your sins and He's faithful and just to forgive you your sin to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and come back to God and ask Him for grace and strength to fight the next battle that's coming. He sifted His communion. He, He attacked His time with the Lord. But then I want you to look down in verse number 47. The Bible says this, And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? When they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. I want you to listen carefully so that you can understand what we're driving at here. We see in this passage that he sifted the communion that he had with the Lord, his time with the Lord. But here we see that he sifted his confidence in the Lord. We might say this, he sifted, he attacked the trust that he had in the Lord. When we open this passage, there's there's a lot that we must consider about the context. Uh, for instance, I want you to remember, you know, the, the Bible says John, John sold Peter under the bus and told us it was Peter that cut off uh, this man's ear. The other apostles don't tell us that, but uh, John, you know, opens his big mouth about it, amen, and, and tells us that it was Peter that did it. Peter is a fisherman. Peter is not a soldier. He's not somebody, he's not a swordsman. Uh, he has no idea how to wield a sword. He's probably never held anything other than a, a filleting knife. But Peter was a big, brutish man with a, a hot-blooded uh, temperament. And whenever... I'll tell you what I believe. You can take this for whatever you want to believe. I don't believe Peter, his ultimate goal, was this high priest servant. 
I don't even think his ultimate goal was the high priest. I think, and we see this, and I want you to note it, I want you to notice that he was furious, he was angry, and I'll tell you who I think he was angry at, and that was Judas. I believe he cut that boy's ear off, not because he was aiming for his ear, he was aiming for his head, but he's a fisherman, he don't know how to swing a sword. And I don't believe he was ultimately trying to get to that servant. I believe he was trying to get anybody out of the way he could so that he could get to Judas. You know, oftentimes what Satan will do? He will bring an unexpected circumstance into our life to try to shake our confidence in the Lord. I want you to remember, the Lord had already told Peter that this was going to happen. He had already said, listen, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise again the third day. This was known information. This was not classified. It was not top secret. And yet, for some reason, the disciples struggled to grapple with this. Even after Christ was crucified, in fact, even after He rose from the grave, whenever the women came back and said, hey, we went to the tomb. He ain't there. There was angels there that told us He's risen. They said, you're crazy. You're crazy. They did not or did not want to or struggled to believe and trust what the Lord had said. Now frame this in the context of the garden on this night. Uh, Simon Peter is with the Lord. The Lord keeps talking about his death. Simon Peter says it's not going to happen. And if it does, I'll go with you even unto death. And then here comes Judas. And they know the moment they see him what has taken place. They know that Judas has betrayed the Lord. And this doesn't surprise Jesus, but for some reason it surprises Peter. Can I remind you this? Nothing ever surprises the Lord. Ever. It doesn't surprise the Lord. He knows who it is before He ever walks up. But to Peter, this is a shaking change of events. He did not expect this. And he has a choice now. He either has to trust the one that knows all things, or he has to take the circumstances into his own hands to try to defend the Lord. Isn't it amazing... How many times we break things just trying to help God with things He didn't ask for our help with? See, He was furious, but He was also faithless. He somehow thought this surprised the Lord. He somehow thought, in fact, notice what it says in verse number 49. I thought this was interesting. It says, when they which were about Him saw what would follow. They didn't know what would follow. They're trying to protect the only one that has ever walked the earth that does know what would follow. They didn't trust Him. They didn't believe that Jesus had all things under control. And so they asked Him a dumb question. I know we say there's no dumb questions, but this was a dumb question. They said unto Him, and by the way, notice this says they. They said unto Him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? I don't know who you believe the other person was. I believe it was probably John, although I don't know that. You say, oh, John, the tender, beloved, you know, leaned upon the bosom of the Lord. Yeah, the same one that him and his brother asked God to call down fire from heaven to smite the Samaritans. John had a temper just like everybody else. I believe it was probably Peter and John. We don't know that, but it seems in the Gospels they're always closely associated one with another. But they had two swords, and so they asked the Lord, Lord, should we smite him? Now, that was a dumb question. It was a dumb question for this reason, that God already knew what was going to happen. God was not shaken by these events. The only thing that was shaken was their faith, not His providence. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And what they were asking was, Lord, do you want us to fix this for you? It is always foolish to presume we can do a better job with anything than God can. 
And I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just merely saying it is, it is the, the epitome of folly to believe that God needs us to straighten things out. And this is an exercise and expression of faithlessness in our life. So Peter asks him this question. Then he doesn't wait for an answer. We have nowhere recorded that the Lord says anything. And I don't believe it's that the Lord took his time. I think it's that Peter didn't wait for an answer. I think he said, Lord, you want to smite him? All right, here we go. And he reaches out and he cuts off his ear. And then listen to what the Lord says. This is fascinating. Look at verse number 51. Jesus answered and said, Suffer you thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. You know what happened? The Lord said, Peter, that's enough. Put your sword up. Peter, I don't need you to fix this. Peter, I don't need you to straighten this out. I need you to disarm yourself and trust me because I've got this under control. You know, times when our confidence is shaken, preacher, what do we do when our faith is, is struggling and, and when our fear is, is gripping us? What can we do? Here's what we need to do. We need to put away that sword. We need to take out this sword. And we need to rely and recline upon God's promises. We need to re- Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That's not just true for lost folks either. That's true for saved folks too. The Word of God bolsters and strengthens your faith. Go back to the right sword. It was interesting. He said to him uh, in another gospel, he said, He that taketh the sword uh, shall die by the sword. Now think about that spiritually. Now remember, Peter's struggling with the old man here. He's fearful. He's not trusting God. He has a physical sword in his hand. He tries to physically harm someone. The Lord says, Peter, if you take that sword, you'll die by that sword. But now if we take this sword, then that old dead man, he can be mortified through this sword. That's the reason we ought to live by this sword. Only this sword can mortify the old man, can embolden and strengthen the new man. He had a choice. What was he going to do with it? He had to put up the old sword and take out the right sword and use it. And, and let me just, and I don't have no fancy letter or word for this. Uh, well, yeah, actually, I do. Let me say this. He was fixed. <laughs> fixed. We've we got to be careful talking about that with swords and everything. But what we mean here is that the Lord fixed what he had messed up. The Lord takes that. I don't know if he picked up the ear. The Bible says he just reached out and touched and it was made whole. The same one that had formed that body reformed it and fixed it and gave life to it. You know what? When we mess up, when we try to take things in our own hands, and when we mess things up, we think, oh my, we've really made a mess of this. And maybe we have. But you know that God is powerful enough to straighten out and to fix and to turn for good the things that we've goofed up? He's able. He's able. Let me give you one final thing, and I'm done this morning. He sifted his uh, confidence. Satan attacked his trust in the Lord. And then finally, look down at verse number 54. He sifted his confession. We might say it this way, that Satan attacked his testimony for the Lord. You see, the first time he, he appeals through, uh, through Peter's flesh. The second time he appeals through a so-called friend. But now he's attacking him through his foes. Listen to what it says in verse number 54. The Bible says, Then they took him, then took they him, and led him, and brought him into the high priest's house. Peter followed afar off. When they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were set down together, Peter sat down among them. But a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, This man was also with them. He denied him, saying, Woman, I know him not. After a little while, another saw him and said, Thou art also uh, of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And about the space of one hour after another confidently affirmed, saying, Of a truth, this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. 
And Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately, while he yet spake, the cock crew. Let me stop there and say a few things about this. One, Satan always begins by attacking your, your personal walk with the Lord. Then he'll try to attack your faith in the Lord, your confidence, your trust in Him. And if he can't destroy you through those means, here's what he'll try to do. He'll try to cripple your ability to be a witness to those around you. He'll try to destroy any possibility of anyone has of listening to you. He'll try to rob you of your credibility. And this is what he's trying to do with Peter. Peter is a Galilean. He is a follower of Jesus Christ. He is a disciple of the living God of Israel. And they know it. Peter knows it. They know it. Everyone knows it. Can I just remind you of this? It might not be that everybody knows about your walk with God, but those that do are watching you. They're watching you. Uh, Listen, you you pull out of the driveway and go to church on Sunday morning, I hope you do, and you at least did today. Your neighbors see that. They, they, They watch that. Your co-workers, uh, whenever you say, well, you know, I can't work on a Sunday or i got to be out here early to get to church on Wednesday night, they, they see that, they notice that, they're watching you. And as such, Satan knows if he can destroy your testimony, he can at least, if he can't destroy you, he can destroy others through you. And that's what he seeks to do with Peter. I want you to notice three simple thoughts. Number one, he was coaxed. In other words, Satan constructed a circumstance in which Peter would be vulnerable concerning his testimony. And you know, the, the, the devil does this in our lives. He puts us in situations where it's easy to keep quiet about being a Christian. Notice these. I want you to notice in verse 54, he was lagging behind. The Bible says Peter followed afar off. Why did Peter do this? He did this because he didn't want to risk being seen as a follower of Jesus Christ. So he lagged afar off to try to conceal and hide his identity. You know, I found this, that whenever we get farther away from God, we get less bold in our testimony. In fact, the Bible says about the, uh, Peter and James and, uh, or Peter and John later on, whenever they were arrested, uh, they, they said about them that uh, they took notice of their boldness because they had been with Christ. In other words, they said these men were bold because they had spent time with Jesus. They learned how to be bold from Him, and He emboldened them in their behavior in life. On the converse side of that, on the flip side of the coin, when I've not been spending time with the Lord, I get real quiet about what God's done in my life. He was lagging. Then I want you to notice not only his lagging, but notice his luring in verse 55, when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were set down together. It was probably a cold night. We don't really know for sure, but we assume having a a, a rough idea of what time of the year and what the climate was like, it was probably a cold night. In fact, I'd say this, if it hadn't been a cold night, they probably wouldn't have been building a fire. And you know what I found? I found that Satan, not only will he provide us in a situation where we're ashamed of testifying of our relationship with God, but then he'll provide a situation where it is tempting to conceal and to hide and for the purpose of being accepted. And can we use this word? Being comfortable. Why did Peter go up to that fire? He just wanted to be comfortable. Why do we often not bring up our relationship with God? Well, we don't want to make things uncomfortable. He lured him in with the promise of comfort. Then I want you to notice his lingering, verse 55. What happened? Peter sat down among them. He sat down among them. Now, it wasn't wrong for Peter to be here. But what was wrong is the fact that Peter sat down under the the false pretense, under the false assumption that he was just somebody there and he didn't know this Jesus. He has literally created a perfect storm where now it is uphill for him to be a witness for Christ instead of it being natural. 
And you know we do that in our workplace oftentimes. We do that amongst family. We do that amongst friends. Haven't you ever found out this? That any time you come into a new job or to a new social setting, uh, oftentimes if you don't share with them that you're a Christian up front, it gets harder as the days go by to begin to discuss that. And this is what Satan is doing to Peter. He's trying to get him comfortable and complacent. And then I want you to notice not only was he coaxed, but he was cowardly. And I'm not going to go through and read it again, but I'll just give it to you. There's three ways that he denies the Lord here. Uh, the first time when they come to him, they say, Hey, are you one of them? Do you know him? And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the man. He denied him through silence. One of the ways that we deny the Lord is through just not talking about him and telling others. We just don't tell people. Uh, listen, you understand that for a lost sinner to die and go to hell, literally nothing has to happen in their life. If they continue on the trajectory that they're on, if they're lost and undone, if they never receive Christ, then you don't have to do anything to send them to hell. They're on their way to hell. And if we're not a witness, and if we don't share in love and speak the truth in love and share the truth of the gospel, then they are destined for hell and for damnation. And as such, just through our silence, we can be complicit in that. He denied him through his silence. Then notice he denied him through secrecy. They said, no, we know you're one of them. And he said this, I am not one of them. He went out of his way. The first time he just says, I don't know what you're talking about. He plays dumb. The second time he goes out of his way to say, I am not a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I would hope there's nobody in this room that has ever had a time after you've been saved that you've looked at someone and said, I'm not a Christian. But you know what often we do? We actively conceal that relationship with God. We go out of our way to try to make sure we're not putting religious stuff in our cubicle. We're not posting where people can see that we're going to God's house. We're not telling people that we were raised in a Bible-believing church, whatever it might be. We're concealing our walk with God. And then I want you to notice not only through secrecy and through silence, but finally denied Him through sin. Now, uh, Luke doesn't tell us this. But Matthew and Mark both tell us that the third time they come, when they, when they see him, they say, we know you're Galilean, your speech betrays you. In other words, you're trying to hide it, but we can tell by the way you talk. And then Peter knows he's caught, and he has to do something to prove that he's not a follower of Jesus Christ. You know what he does? The Bible says he began to curse. And that doesn't just mean he began to take an oath or swear an oath. You know why I know that? Because one of the Gospels tells us that he did both. He swore an oath. He said, I pledge to you that I'm not. But then it also says that he cursed. And he began to use foul language. You know what he was doing? He was saying to himself, I've got to prove some way that I'm not a follower of Jesus Christ. He was thinking, what can I do to convince them that I am not a follower of him? Now, can we just reverse engineer that for a second? I would trust that there's nobody in this room that has ever said to themselves, or I hope there's not. Let me say, if there has been, God forgive you and restore you. But I would hope there's never been anyone in this room that said, I've got to convince everybody I'm not a Christian. I'm going to sin to do it. But what I do find interesting is that the logic behind Peter's actions suggests this, that when we sin, it sends a message to the world that we're not one of his. Now, Peter was one of his. He knew the Lord. We'll see here in a moment that that never changed. But the message he was trying to convey and the message that you and I passively and casually display to the world when we live in sin and when we do wrong is that we're not one of his. And if you're saved, then you know that's not true. But it's still the testimony that we give. Every time we sin, we tell the world, I'm not a Christian, even though we are. It's been said before that Gandhi 
made this statement and said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Now, we, listen, I, and I'll be honest, we, we think about Gandhi and we laugh, you funny little Indian guy didn't eat enough, you know. There's not a lot of cultural connection here. But you understand that for many years he was one of the most powerful men in India, one of the largest countries in the world. Who knows how many Hindus could have been brought to Christ had Gandhi received Christ as his Savior. And he said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. He had seen too many people cursed by the fire. But what do we find in this passage? And I'll close with this. We see that he was coaxed. His lagging, his luring, his lingering. He was cowardly. He denied the Lord through silence, secrecy, and sin. But even despite all that, look at verse 61. The Bible says, And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. I would propose to you tonight, today, this morning. Is it still this morning? I don't know how long I've been preaching. I would propose this to you. That though he wouldn't claim Jesus, Jesus claimed him. Though... Though he wouldn't speak up for the Lord, the Lord turned and looked upon him. You know, and I, the, Paul wrote, writing to Timothy, talks about how if we deny the Lord, he'll deny us. And I believe there is some truth to that. But then you know what it says? It says, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. You know why I know I'm secure in Christ today? It's not because I know I'm always going to do right and I'm never going to mess up. But it's because I know He's made me an eternal promise that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it's not that He owes me any, any kept promises. It's that He owes Himself the kept promises. Uh, the writer of Hebrews said it this way, that by two immutable things in the which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have an anchor, sure, steadfast for the soul, and that within the veil. In other words, we might know that God is not... Because God cannot lie. He can't lie to you and He also can't lie to Himself. And no matter how much we mess up, God has made promises and He is eternally bound by His Word to keep those promises. I see three, four, five, eight simple things. One, I see there was a recognition the Lord claimed Him. He didn't quit being the Lord's disciple. The Lord knew right where He was, didn't He? The Lord turned and looked at Him. The Lord knew right where He was. And you know the Lord knows right where you are this morning. Whether you've messed up, made mistakes, let God down, whatever you've done, He knows right where you are. And He still looks upon you with His favor. He still loves you. There was a uh, recognition, but then when that happened, there was a remembrance. Peter heard that rooster crow, and he saw the eyes of the Savior, and he immediately remembered, just a few verses earlier, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that thy faith fail not. He remembered in that moment that God had told him of his weakness. God had warned him of his pride. And you know what that encouraged him in? To know that though it may have took him by surprise, though he may have never dreamed he was capable, that God knew the whole time that he was capable. We don't see it in this passage, but there is a repentance that takes place. The Bible says that Peter, well it does say in verse 62, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. It broke him. You know, if we want to be restored, we have to be willing to be broken. A contrite heart and a contrite spirit, the Lord will not despise. He receives contrition. What is contrition? Contrition is the the heart's response to conviction. It is us being broken over our sins so that we may be broken from our sin. 
We've got to be bothered by it. Peter was bothered once he really realized what he had done. Here's Christ strapped to a post being flogged and beaten. And there he is warming himself by the comfort of a fire, cursing and swearing just to prove he doesn't even know this Jesus. And it broke him. There's a far more vast contrast between the goodness of God in our life and the darkness of our sin in our life than there was between where Jesus was sitting at that moment and where Peter was sitting at that moment. So, preacher, what do you mean? I mean this, that right now, uh, Christ, He wasn't just beaten. He was crucified for you and I. And our sin wasn't just to deny Him. Our sin sent Him to the cross. It ought to break us what our sin means and does. And if we'll be broken, and again, we don't find it in this passage, but I'll just remind you of it in closing. There was a restoration that took place. Later on, Christ, of course, the, the evening would go on into the morning. Christ would be crucified. He'd be placed in a borrowed tomb. He would uh, lie there for three days, three nights, raised in power and in glory on the third morning. And uh, the Bible says that whenever the women came to the tomb, bringing bearing spices and and uh, and, and uh, fragrances to uh, to cover and anoint the body that two angels met him there met them there and uh, said to them he's not here he is risen and then they gave a message to those women they said go and tell his disciples and then it says this and Peter that he goeth before them into Galilee isn't that interesting go tell my disciples and Peter I don't think that's to suggest Peter wasn't a disciple. I think what he was saying is, Peter, you're still a disciple. You've messed up. You've made mistakes. You didn't claim me, Peter, but I'm claiming you. You didn't, you didn't stand up for me, Peter, but I'm standing up for you. And I still love you. Isn't it good to know, hey, we're going to make mistakes, but when we do make mistakes, isn't it good to know, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, He's the propitiation not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All you have to do is come to Calvary. All you have to do is come to the Lord. Lord, I messed up. I made mistakes. God, forgive me. Restore me and set me right and help me to walk with you.